grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Our lesson this morning is found in the book of Acts, the 17th chapter, beginning at the 16th verse. I know there were printouts of the text on the table on the way into the sanctuary, and it's on page 926 in your pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along. While you're looking for it, I will apologize in advance for my going on and off my glasses because I'm waiting on cataract surgery and my, my eyesight really isn't very good right now. And this is supposed to be big print here. Hard to believe. Nevertheless, God provides. Beloved, hear God's word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all, by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thus far from God's word. Just a brief prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. 
Jesus' words at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. Here's the starting point. This is Jesus' church growth program. This is how Jesus builds his church, one living stone at a time. Now, my assigned topic is evangelism. And I suspect that most of us, perhaps a few of us, and I will include myself in that, might rather skip over this chapter in the membership manual and even talk about church government. Why do we find evangelism such a hard lift? Well, I think there's many reasons, and you may identify with one or more of these. There's, of course, the fear of rejection, fearing that a rejection is a rejection of us personally rather than what we present to a person. The fear of being stumped by a hard question. You're trying to explain the gospel to someone and they interrupt you to ask if those locusts in the book of Revelation are really black Huey helicopters. And you walk away saying, what do I say to that? I don't know. It's a hostile environment. There's no question about that. It's always been a hostile environment in one way, shape, or form or another, but it certainly is in this day and age. And let's be fair there is an unhelpful but well-earned reputation on the part of some, quotes, Christians, which doesn't make our job any easier. And finally, and I think this is actually the, one of the greatest obstacles, because this is, sort of un, this is more unconscious than the others, and that is this. We all know how obituaries and tributes to those who have died tend to read, and they speak of that person going to a better place, irregardless of what their view of the gospel might have been. It's entirely reasonable for all of us to fall under the assumption that so-and-so to whom we are speaking is a decent person who behaves well, and therefore, in the end, he or she will be all right. In other words, what Martin Luther confronted 500 years ago, the idea that a good God will not deny heaven to a good person who does his best. There's only one problem with that. What Scripture testifies to us does not permit us the luxury of operating according to that understanding. And we are bound by what it is that the Scripture reveals to us about God. By the way, and I would just note as a footnote here, and I hope I didn't read this wrong, but I think I read in the outline of the evangelism materials that Pastor Rick sent to me, the point of view that if you get stumped on a question, you can usually find the right answer in the Bible. I would correct that. You can always find the right answer in the Bible. Cross out the word usually. Sorry, Rick. I think it's, it's fairer to say it that way. Now, having said all that, I read a long passage of a fairly familiar episode where Paul was in Athens speaking in the Areopagus, and he encountered a society I submit very much like our own. They were, and you've heard this before, spiritual, but not religious. In fact, so much so that they had erected an altar to, quote, 
an unknown God. They wanted to make sure that they covered all the bases. So let's learn from Paul. Let's learn from how it is that he addressed a crowd like this, and at the various stages of his address, we may, it may touch base with what we are doing in terms of sharing the gospel with those in our society, which, as I say, is very much like theirs, because human nature has not changed. He First of all, he starts where they are. He meets them where they are. He observes the circumstances of their lives and their, and their beliefs and finds this altar to the, quote, unknown God, and from that he begins. We meet each of the people to whom we speak where they are. They may be utter strangers to the notion of the gospel. They may be former believers, as they conceive of themselves, who are now turned off to it for one reason or another, and there may be a particular turning point that turned them away. Or they may have an imperfect or incorrect understanding. But any of those things, we start where they are. We don't start at the same place every time. We do as Paul does. We start where they are. And where he begins, if we're beginning from scratch, it's the same place as he begins, and he begins with creation. See what he says in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Beloved, let me be very clear about this. We cannot, as so many would like to do, and as it is tempting to do, play fast and loose with Scripture's account of creation and the fall and the first promise of the gospel. That is an integral part of the story. If there is indeed no garden and no Adam and no Eve and no tree and no serpent, then there is no need for a cross. If that tree is fictional, then the cross is fictional as well. This is the story that God has given us. This is the account of creation that God has given us. God spoke the world into existence. And when his first creatures, Adam and Eve, fell, were taken down by the temptation of the serpent, the gospel was first announced even then, way back at the very beginning. And as we go through the study of the scriptures, we find that the promise matured and developed and grew from that point. But without that starting point, the story loses its meaning. And so we begin with creation. And then we proceed, as Paul does, perhaps, depending on the person we're speaking to, to the idea of providence. Verse 26 in your lesson here. He made from one man, Adam, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. God is in control of all of history. He is the Lord of history. Many of the people we speak to, many of the people we speak to, of whatever generation, however you call these generations, and I get confused, what's a, what's a millennial, what's a Gen X, what's a Gen Y, I don't know what it is anymore, but there are so many folks in all these generations, and perhaps there are people here who think that they are the product of time plus matter plus chance. Nothing could be further from the truth. Remember what we read in Psalm 139, that before we were formed in the womb, God knew us. That every day ordained for us was written in his book before one of them came to be. We are that precious to God and known by God. And his providence encompasses us round about. 
And the people to whom we are speaking are looking for some meaning so often. And that's a beginning place to find the meaning. But they matter to God. They're not just an accident. They're not just an accident. But the the condition that we are all in, that we have all been in to begin with, that many of the folks we're speaking to are in, is a condition of alienation from God, is it not? See what he says in beginning in verse 30, and this is by implication. He talks about the fact that that men and women have, have gone astray and that these, these were times of ignorance, he calls them here. God overlooked it in the past, but now he has established a day on which he will judge those who have gone astray. See, even if the person to whom we are speaking does not yet understand the idea of sin and judgment and personal accountability to the Creator, they will almost certainly know, no, not almost, they will certainly know that something is not as it should be, that things are not as they should be, that this world is not as it should be, that it is broken. All the cries that we hear for justice and for renewal and for change are a recognition that things are not as they should be. And behind that is the sense that it is not as God originally made it to be and that we have taken it astray by our sin and our rebellion. Why do I know this? I know this because the Bible tells me so. Remember, always look to the Bible for the answer. And we read in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That is to say, we have a divine sense within us that this is not all there is. And the people to whom we're speaking, no matter how deeply they've buried it, also have that sense. They have eternity set in their hearts. But you see, despite all the evidence of God's existence, we turn our backs on God. That's what it means to be in Adam. Now, see, I don't know if Paul quoted from himself, but if he did, he might have quoted what he had written or was going to write to the church in Rome. This is in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He wrote there, For what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to us, plain to humanity, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What's he saying there? He's saying creation shows forth that there is a God and shows his, if you will, his godness. So when people understand that there is something wrong, that there is something that needs to be set right. That is an expression of that innate understanding that there is a God behind all of this. But we have turned away. We have turned everyone to his own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. G.K. Chesterton, perhaps a hundred years ago, said to the effect that the one theological doctrine which can be demonstrated by empirical evidence is original sin. We know that from what we observe and what we see in ourselves. Dr. Billy Graham has said said on many occasions to the effect that as hard as it was to get people saved, first of all, you had to get them lost. In other words, you had to convince someone of the need to be saved. And that's the picture here as well. And finally, in verse 31 here, resurrection. As Paul argues in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians and in many other places, it all turns on the resurrection. Everything. 
who Jesus is, what he said, what he came to do and did, the truth of judgment and heaven and hell and the offer of salvation, the nature of the scriptures, it all depends on the truth of the resurrection. If that grave is not empty, the whole thing collapses. And you will hear people even now, even this past Easter season, people who claim the name of Jesus Christ yet saying, that doesn't really matter. What matters is the spirit of resurrection, whether or not not he actually rose from the dead. May I submit that that is so far from the truth that you cannot begin to reconcile one with the other. The resurrection is the center of everything because it is the reversal of that curse which was imposed at the very beginning at the time of the fall. So where do you start? With whom do you start? Well, the very simple answer is where God has put you. God has put each of us in different places, in different circumstances, in different families, in different employments, in different schools. We speak to the people whom we know. We don't have to go, God bless Pastor Rick going to China. Amen? Amen. Absolutely. If he has the opportunity and the willingness and the, and the, and the, and the skill and the resources to be able to do that, God bless him. That is a... That is a Remarkable task. I'm, I wouldn't be up to it. I'll be the first to confess that. But, peop, but God has put people in front of me that I can speak to, not just from a pulpit, but people who want, to whom I speak on a daily basis. And if, I, if I'm careful not to, and always conscious not to fall prey to this notion of this is a good person, I don't need to really worry about that circumstance. No, I want to be able to share the gospel with them. And I want to be able to do it by God's help because I have, to, I have to pray for that help and for that motivation every time into go, I go into those circumstances. Do I do it regularly? Do I do it as I should? No. Do any of us? No. But we do our bit. We do our part. We share. We tell about the wonderful fact of the rescue that is ours in Jesus Christ. If there are resources you need, there are resources more than you can begin to count. One particular that I would recommend, and, and Pastor Rick can point you to it, and this is if you are a, of a mind to, to host gatherings and so forth, is something called Exploring Christianity. It was developed by Rico Tice, who is at All Souls Langham in London. He is an Anglican. And he has a very helpful line, which is simply a reflection of what we read in the Scriptures all in many places, but we see in this lesson here, after Paul proclaimed the resurrection, what, what does it tell us? That when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others, others said, we will hear you again about this. Enrico always reminds us, we preach Christ, God opens blind eyes. We preach Christ, God is the only one who can change a heart. God is the only one who can, who can work that mysterious work within a person to bring them from death to life. And in many places in the scripture, we're told that that mysterious work is every bit as grand, every bit as powerful, every bit as extreme as Jesus being raised from the dead. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he effectively tells us that it takes a resurrection to get us saved because we are brought from death to life. And so we preach Christ. God opens blind eyes and God gets someone saved. 
Now, I would close with this, with an incentive. As if Jesus' command and the Great Commission isn't enough incentive. That, that should be enough to start with. But go back to the very beginning of the lesson. This is chapter 17, verse 16, right? The beginning of it. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. Now, this is one of the cases where the English translation does not capture the full force of the original Greek language. The Greek word is the same word from which we get the English word paroxysm. A paroxysm of grief is, an out, is a violent outpouring of grief. Paul's spirit was paroxysmed, if I can just destroy the English altogether, by what he saw, by the fact that these people were worshiping all these other gods, including this quote, unknown God. Paul agonized at the condition of the Athenians. And as we look around us and see those who, by our understanding, are good, decent people doing the right thing, we should be agonized if they do not know Christ. And we should be compelled by that to go forward and to tell the wonderful good news. And here's a really, this may come across as a little bit strange, but I'm struck by this story. You may have seen it if you see these things online. But and with this I close. You know, um, Penn and Teller, the magician couple, big, great big guy does all the talking, tiny little guy does, does no talking, okay? The big guy, his name is Penn Gillette, with a J, I think, I'm not sure. In any event, he's a committed atheist. He, he makes no bones about it. The story is told, this is a true story, that there was a fellow who went around to a number of his performances with the intention of giving him the scriptures, of trying to present Christ to him. Very politely, very, very kindly, and Pendulette took the scriptures. It didn't change his mind, at least it hasn't so far. God knows, God can, can work according to God's timetable. But here's what Penn said about the fact that this man had taken the time and the trouble to go to someone who looks like a committed enemy of the gospel and yet to share it with him. He says, to the effect of, if you honestly believe that there's a God and heaven and hell and a judgment, how much do you have to hate someone not to witness to them? This is the truth. This is life. And this is our incentive. The person standing before you who does not know Christ is bound for judgment and will stand on their own in the judgment. Sinners shall not stand in the judgment, nor in the congregation of the righteous. We're told that in the first psalm. That's our incentive. We have a great treasure. What we do with it is to spread it forward, to spread it about, to spread it from, from person to person, from room to room, from family to family, from mouth to ear, from page to page. That's what we're called for. Brothers and sisters, that's evangelism. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you've done all the work, that you've come all the way in the person of your Son to rescue us, to bring us, bring us out of darkness into light. I pray for this congregation, for Pastor Rick, and for all those in in governance here, that this place might be a beacon in the darkness, it might be a light in this city, that from here the good news might go forth. 
Father, I pray from these words of mine that whatever I've said that's wrong or unhelpful or off the point would just be forgotten, just, just cast it away. But what's your words, all that comes from you, I pray that it would remain and that we would rest in that and draw life from your word. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said together, Amen. Amen. Amen.